0: got several observations for you that I want to start out with this morning. Observation number one, we don't desire confrontation. We do not like confrontation. Now by confrontation, I don't mean a fight, like a street fight or even a verbal fight between spouses in the home or parents and kids. I mean when somebody comes to you in love and confronts you. So what they're saying is, man, I see some Some stuff in your life and it looks like impatience. It looks like bitterness or it looks like resentment or it looks like you're not spending time with your spouse or your kids like you should. Can we talk about that? That's what I mean by confrontation. Second observation, we need confrontation. It may be that we don't like it, but it is perhaps the biggest need that we have in our lives could be the biggest need in the church, and it certainly could be the biggest need in our interpersonal lives or our family lives. Now, confrontation does come naturally in a few areas of life. Let me give you a couple. Parenting, confrontation comes kind of naturally, doesn't it? Uh, Those of you who are parents, remember your kids are little, and you say things like, no, you may not do that, Think about what you're about to do, because it will have consequences. Make a wise choice here. That's confrontation that comes naturally. In the workplace, for a boss to say to say, a new employee, you're not doing that right, come let me help you and show you the correct way of doing this job, that's natural. Confrontation can come naturally between friends if it's more superficial stuff like hobbies or interest areas or, or shopping. So here's my story along those lines, which will embarrass myself, but I think it'll serve its purpose. Was out to lunch with, oh, four or five of our younger guys on staff last week Wednesday at Sadie's. So this is for leadership and ministry purposes, so it's kind of serious, but at the end I thought, oh, we'll end lunch on a lighter moment. And so I said to the guys, okay, guys, got one final question for you. Mavericks, magic, or I don't care. So, listen. knows what's up already. So there's this awkward silence for a couple seconds, and then Drew, our worship leader who's up here, you know, before us every Sunday leading in musical worship. So Drew breaks the silence, and Drew says, uh, Ron, how about four things, mavericks, magic, I don't care, or I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> By which he meant, I fit the fourth category. Because um, I must not follow professional basketball enough, although I'm really enjoying the finals. uh, Because it's not the magic, it's the heat, the other Florida team that is in the finals. So did Drew hesitate at all to confront me even before other people? No, not at all. Not a problem. But with more serious, deeper issues like impatience or bitterness or not worshiping God like we should or respecting our family like we should... We tend to draw back from that kind of stuff. Observation number three. We receive confrontation from those we trust. So with that, we're ready to look at Matthew. Open up to Matthew chapter 8. We'll get there in a minute. We're going to kind of start with that third observation. We receive confrontation from the people we trust. Matthew is going to show us that Jesus is an entirely trustworthy God To serve and follow and obey. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we said the Old Testament ends with a bunch of problems. Among them, the people do not have a king they can joyfully and willfully follow, and God does not have a temple that he can properly be worshiped in. Well, I think I didn't mention that there are dozens, actually over a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah, a savior, a servant of Yahweh, a king. And of course, by the end of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, that person has not come yet. And like I said last week, Matthew gives us the answer to that. It's in chapter one, verse one. It's in a name. That name is Jesus. So, Matthew is going to tell us That Jesus is the authority. And therefore, someone we can trust. Matthew will do that in three ways, actually, five, six, seven ways, but we just have time for three. I think these are the three main ones. First, Matthew is going to present Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So here's where we'll look at uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17 by the way, all the passages I'm going to read from Matthew this morning are unique to Matthew, meaning the other three gospel writers do not have the same verses. They just pick different things to present about Jesus. And so when we read through these verses, this will give you an idea about what is unique about Matthew. And quoting the Old Testament is a huge thing with the book of Matthew. So chapter 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is Matthew quoting, or Jesus quoting, uh, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. If you've never read 52, 53, you've got to go home and read it today sometime. This is one of the most important parts of the Old Testament that talks about the death of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, we've got a servant of Yahweh, a human being, a person, But that person is pictured as a lamb that is brought to slaughter, to sacrifice. And the lamb is innocent, but the lamb takes on the sins of the people who are guilty, and the lamb takes the punishment, pays the penalty that the people should have paid for their sins. So this is all about Christ and his crucifixion, talked about in Isaiah centuries before Jesus was ever born. And Matthew says, that's come, that is fulfilled the Messiah is here. Second example of prophecies that get quoted by Matthew or by Jesus in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. So flip up a few pages. And this will be verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved With whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is from Isaiah chapter 42. Neat thing about Isaiah, the last, oh, third of the book, chapter 40 to the end of the book, have five or six what are called servant songs. They're songs, hymns, lyrical poetry about a servant of Yahweh. And we saw Isaiah 53. That servant is also a lamb, sacrificed. In Isaiah 42, that servant brings God's truth to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And so, again, what Matthew is saying is, the servant of the servant songs of Isaiah, who is the Messiah, he's come, he's here, he's before you, his name is Jesus. A third, and again, this is among dozens that we could pick from Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. So head back earlier on in Matthew, chapter 2, verse 6. Matthew, the gospel writer, says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So two prophecies here. This is from Micah, a minor prophet at the end of the Old Testament. Two prophecies. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That fits Jesus. Second, he'll be not just a savior, but a king, a ruler. And of course, all of this, Matthew says, all of these prophecies, over a hundred of them in the Old Testament, all come together in this one person, Jesus, God the second person. Second, Matthew, or Jesus is presented in the book of Matthew as someone greater than anyone Or anything. And here I'm just going to read a few verses for you. I don't necessarily want you to page back and forth. Some of these are just a part of a verse. So just listen or look at the center screen. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says this. Something greater than the temple is here. Same chapter, chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus says, Something greater than Solomon is here. And of course, Jesus means himself. Now, what was the big deal with Solomon? Well, Solomon built the temple, the first temple, and God tasked him with doing that, building a place where God could dwell in a special way. Also, the borders, the boundaries of Israel, were larger in Solomon's day than there were at any time before the reign of Solomon or after. In fact, the days of David and Solomon, father and son, are called the Golden Age of Israel. Because of the temple being built, unity among the 12 tribes, proper worship most of the time, and these boundaries being great. After the death of Solomon, those of you who know your Bible history, things went downhill in all three of those areas. And Israel has never regained what it had in Solomon's day. But Jesus says, there's someone not to be compared with Solomon now, speaking of himself. Let me read for you one more passage. Matthew chapter 13, verse 17. Jesus, talking to his disciples, says this. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Meaning what? And There are prophets, kings, wise people, righteous people in the Old Testament that would give their left arm to be where you are now, listening to the Messiah, face-to-face in his presence. Third, Jesus is presented in the book of Matthew as the voice that is above all others. Now, by five in your notes and on the screens, what I mean is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 form what is called the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here last week, I said there's a backbone to Matthew and it's three sermons. There are a little more than three sermons in the whole book, but there are three main ones. This is the first, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, 7. Over 10 times in this sermon, we find Jesus saying this, I say to you. In fact, most of those dozen or so times is the specific formula. Again, Jesus is saying this, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Meaning, you've had religious leaders tell you what is truth or interpret uh, what we call the Old Testament. Don't listen to them, listen to me, says Jesus. Truth is in my words. Definitely something from a person in authority. Uh, you'll remember last week I read the story of the two foundations, a guy who built his house on rock and then a guy who built his house on sand. Uh, let me reread for you what happened right after that story. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the wrap-up of a sermon that's taken three chapters. Matthew says this, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority not as their scribes. So we could go on all over the place in Matthew, but at least look at those three areas and say, man, Matthew, I think more than the other gospel writers, presents Jesus as a person of authority. Of course, it's God himself that says these things. So we hit that third area. We want to trust someone. We want to make sure they're an authority if they're going to confront us. Let's go back to the first one or two. Whom is it that Jesus confronts here in the Gospel of Matthew and why? I think there are two big groups of people that Jesus confronts. Uh, Here's the first. Jesus in the book of Matthew confronts those who trust in what they do. I'll actually spend quite a bit of time here. Part of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew is about righteousness. Let's define that quickly. Righteousness is what we do that is in alignment with what God wants, what he desires, what he plans and purposes. So righteousness has to do with actions. Are they divorced from faith, from our thought life, from belief, from humility? No, we'll see later the connection between the two. But for now, we're going to say it's just what you do, as long as it's in accord with what God wants. The book of Matthew is book-ended with two big teachings on righteousness. One is in Sermon on the Mount, Five, six, seven. The second one is in chapter 23, and chapter 23 we're going to call the seven woes. So how in the world do you spell that even? This is not woe, W-H-O-A, like what you say to a horse to slow down. This is W-O-E, and it's not a word we really use. So in a few minutes, we'll try to define what that means. For now, let's go back to Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, look at that if you've got a Bible. And this will be chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Part of what Jesus is saying is this. People engage in righteousness. What was righteousness? Doing things in alignment with what God wants. So the good things. People engage in righteousness. But what at first glance appears very selfless, they're putting aside their own desires to do what God wants them to do, is actually very self-centered. Because in doing righteousness, these people are doing it for themselves. It's like an investment. You put money in, you get stuff back, you get interest. So what should be selfless is actually self-centered. We're going to see the same thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at chapter 7, so flip a page. Toward the end, verse 21 this is the second to the last thing in the Sermon on the Mount, the last thing being that story of the two foundations we read last week. Verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, that's a really shocking thing to say to people that uh, apparently are doing God's will, engaged in righteousness. Let me try to give you an illustration as to how shocking that is. Um, I'm known in my family for being someone who's a little OCD about traffic rules. Like when I'm driving or even when I'm riding my bike. And so I'm going to tell you a quick story to try to illustrate that. If I was in the middle of a desert on my bicycle and it's completely flat and it's a clear day, you can see five miles in each direction. Let's say I come up to a four-way intersection. It's a stoplight intersection. No gas store, no convenience store, no cars, no people. Got that in your mind? If the stoplight is red and it's going to be read for four minutes, I will bring my bike to a stop, put my foot on the ground, and wait the four minutes. So when Carl and my wife and I ride bikes, um, she has a little bit of a different view. It's not a law-breaking view. It's just a different interpretation of the laws. (laughs) And so sometimes when we come to things like stoplights or stop signs, um, there's a little bit of a tense moment on like, okay, who's going to defer to the other person in terms of efficiency, efficiency, And and a law abiding attitude At any rate (laughs) When I'm driving the car Or riding my bike I obey all the laws So imagine if someone came up to me And they said Ron, you disobey and dishonor The laws of the road You do so so much That I hope you get caught And thrown in jail Because that's where you belong Now, if someone were to say that to me I would say What planet did you arrive from? What drug are you on? That's not who I am But that's what Jesus says to these people, and potentially that's what he says to us today. So there's some way in which I can disobey God, but do what he wants me to do. And we'll explore that through a few more passages in Matthew. Let's look at the other end of Matthew. This is chapter 23. So the other teaching on righteousness I say chapter 23 is toward the end, it's another bookend. You might say, but Ron, Matthew has 28 chapters, this really isn't the end. However, just before Matthew chapter 23, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He is in his final few days before the crucifixion. Matthew 23 takes place on either Monday or Tuesday. Two days later, Wednesday is the last supper with the disciples. Friday, a day after that, is the crucifixion. So in terms of his three-year ministry on earth, the time in which he taught up to the crucifixion, this really is toward the end of things. Chapter 23, let's read just one of the seven woes. So we'll start at verse 27. Jesus says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! "'For you are like whitewashed tombs, "'which outwardly appear beautiful, "'but within are full of dead people's bones.'" And all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That word lawlessness, you might not remember, but we saw that at the end of these people that would prophesy and do healings in Jesus' name. He called them lawless. So, like I said, this is one of the seven woes. WOE, woe is not an English word we use very much, maybe not at all. So here's one thing you can do if while you're listening to the New Testament or you're reading it in front of you, you come across a word you don't know, uh, look at different Bible translations. And an easy way to do that is on the web, go to among other sites, biblegateway.com, biblegatewayoneword.com. Click on look up a passage Then select multiple translations, and then you get to pick up to five. So uh, instead of woe, here's what some maybe more modern or paraphrasing translations have. The message, which is really a paraphrase, has this. So Jesus, instead of woe, says, I've had it with you. The common English Bible, the CEB, says this how terrible it will be for you. And here's my favorite, the NLT, the New Living Translation. Instead of woe, Jesus says this, what sorrow awaits you? Isn't that heavy? What if somebody came up to you and in all seriousness said, "Someone you respect, and they said, what sorrow awaits you? It'd scare me almost to death if someone said that. But Jesus says that to the Pharisees. But also in chapter 23, we've got the antidote to this disease of self righteousness. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, same chapter, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So there's the antidote, and it's humility. Now let's put everything on pause here. How do we know what humility is? We can go in one of two directions here. We can try to define that with our own mind, our own thinking, our own opinions, or there's a second option we'll get to in a minute. Let's take the first, though. Maybe humility means, especially in light of a few other things in the gospel, we just don't brag or boast about what we do. In fact, maybe we try to keep secret the money we give to church or the amount of time that we pray during a day or how accurate we're we're proceeding through this New Testament listening discipline. Maybe that's what humility means. There's a second option, and that is, it's in the context. Keep reading. Jesus will tell us. We don't have to depend upon our own opinions. Look right above those two verses we read, verses 8, 9, and 10. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. What Jesus is saying is this. Humility is in response to, in the presence of, bending the knee to, a person, and that is Jesus. He defines what humility is. And it's found in a relationship. And this is what was lacking with the Pharisees of that day. So, me riding my bike and obeying all those laws, God might say, that means nothing before me. And the reason for that might be, Ron, you have no faith, no belief, no humility. In fact, maybe in your heart there's something wrong there. Maybe there's a pride or an arrogance. Look at me, I'm obeying the laws. Look at other people, they don't. Faith, belief, humility, on the one hand, have to go with repentance, a turning away from wrongdoing, a turning toward righteousness, doing what's right in God's eyes. They cannot be one without the other. All right, so we've looked at this idea of humility in Matthew 23. Let's go back to the middle of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Remember I said, backbone of Matthew, three sermons. We know what the first one is. Here's the second one. Chapter 18 is a sermon given to the church. Matthew is in huge part about quoting the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the authority, more so than the other three Gospels. But Matthew is not only out to show us that truth, that connection with the Old Testament. Jesus is more than just the fulfillment of messianic expectation. He's bringing something new, and that new thing is called the church. We read about it first in Matthew 16, and here we've got a whole sermon that talks about living in community as a church. One author that I was reading the past few weeks said this, in the Gospel of Matthew, is Jesus Jew or is he new? And the answer of the author was yes. He's both. He's Jewish, and he's bringing something new as well. And one of those new things is the church. Matthew 18, first verse. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That should remind us of that chapter. We were just in chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn... And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we see turning there that's repentance, turning away from wrongdoing, and we see humility like we saw in chapter twenty three and again we can ask the question, what does humility mean and again, we can go in one or two directions we can say. I think I know what humility means, especially with this idea of a child. Children are innocent. uh, They trust their parents, and often they're kind of dumb, really. So maybe I need to be naively innocent, trusting, and dumb, and that's what proper humility is. I don't think so. Let's not go the route of our opinion, but go to context and look at Scripture. A verse or two later, in verse 6, we read Jesus saying, That there are little ones who believe in me. So there's that element of belief, faith, humility that's in relationship with a person, and the person is Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew has Jesus three different times talking about children or the least of these or the little ones, and they mean believers, they mean followers of Christ, regardless of age. I don't have the five or ten minutes to demonstrate that to you, but. Matthew 18 is one of those three places. Little ones are people that believe in Jesus. All right. Uh, Let's, now that we've seen that repentance and believing go together, uh, see one tool, one book, one resource that I'd recommend to you, and it's this one. It's called God is the Gospel by John Piper. Uh, Let me read you just a caption. It's a heading of a section in this book. Because this book does a great job of bringing these things together. What we do, and what we believe, our faith, our humility, our relationship, and how those flow together. This is what Piper says. Again, this is just the heading of a section of the book. No good thing in the gospel is good without the final supreme good, which is God. Under that as a heading, Piper spends two pages talking about what that means. If you'd like to read more about this relationship between righteousness and faith, believing humility, uh, we've got this book. It's actually a paperback version we've got in our resource center for sale, and it's only $2. I mean, it's like way less than half of what you would pay in a bookstore for it. So it's worth, these two or three pages are worth that $2. Just Piper using scripture to talk about this relationship between what we do and what's in the inside. That's a huge part of the book of Matthew. Jesus saying, righteousness does not come from the outside in, it comes from the inside out. And second, God has to transform your inside. You can't do it by yourself. Piper talks about those kinds of things. So we've wrapped up, or we are wrapping up, this first big group of people that Jesus talks to, they trust in what they do not just the Pharisees. It's a lot more than just the Pharisees. They end up rejecting Christ. Saying, we know what's righteous. Leave us alone. We don't need a Messiah. Here's what I was reminded of. I finished reading uh, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia about three or four weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to put the cover up on the screen for you. It's called The Last Battle. In The Last Battle... There's a group of, I was going to say guys, but they're not human beings, they're dwarves. And these dwarves get deceived for a while. They get deceived in that a false Aslan, Aslan is the lion who's the uh, Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. A false lion comes up to the dwarves and they believe in that false lion for a little bit. And they realize they got duped. So because of this jaded experience, When the real Aslan sends representatives and eventually comes himself to the dwarves, they have nothing to do with Aslan. And they develop this quote, this slogan that they say repeatedly in the last battle. It's like the saddest thing I've ever heard or read about. Here's their quote. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And they keep saying that. People try to help them. The dwarves are for the dwarves. Meaning, we know what we need, We can handle it ourselves. We know what righteousness is. We don't need a Messiah. We don't need Aslan. If you want to read something sad, read the story of the dwarves in the last battle. That's what this group is that Jesus confronts. All right, there's a second big group that Jesus confronts in the book of Matthew. And this second group is the moral and the curious You'll remember last week we read, again, that story of the two men building on two different foundations. Well, there were two words I didn't point out to you last week in that story. They're the words wise and foolish. The wise man built his house on a rock. The foolish man built his house on sand. The storms came. It undermined the earth below the foundation. The house collapses. Look at Matthew 25. This will be our last passage. Because in Matthew chapter 25, we'll start at verse 1, those same two words in Greek come up. In English, we see them as the same words as well. Wise and foolish. Uh, Remember how I said there were three sermons that formed the backbone of Matthew? We know what the first is. The second was Matthew 18, Sermon to the Church. Here's the third one, chapters 24 and 25, which is a sermon about when Christ comes again as king, what we call his second coming. And his question to his followers is this, do you long for that day? Are you ready? Do you hope for that as if it were today? There are other things taught too, but that's a core of these two chapters. So here's one parable. Chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins or maidens who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Let's pause there for a minute. So these are like bridesmaids, but they're going to serve the groom instead of the bride. And they're going to escort him, be part of a little parade to the wedding feast. And that's going to happen at night, and they're responsible for having lamps. Uh, to light the way. So, verse 2 Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose. And trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. A phrase that we actually heard earlier in Matthew 7. The people that did great things for Jesus proclaimed messages of truth in his name. So here's what I think is happening with these ten maidens. Let's use our imagination a little bit here. There are five who are foolish. Let's say that they have to report to their stations at 5 p.m. And they don't know when the bridegroom is going to come. So let's imagine what their day looks like. Maybe they don't think of the groom or the wedding at all during the day. Or maybe just once or twice real quickly. So they're consumed with their chores around the home, their family, getting together with neighbors. And then 5 o'clock runs around and all of a sudden, i got to grab my lamp, i got to go. Maybe it's the way some of us treat church and Bible studies. There's no thought of Christ in our mind. And then, whoops, I've got to get to church. I've got to get to Bible study. Or it's 11 p.m., I'm about to go to bed. I haven't listened to or read the scriptures at all today. I guess I can put some, what do you call earbuds, plugs, and just drift off to sleep listening to my two or three chapters today. Contrast that with the five maidens or virgins who are called wise. Let's imagine their day. They get up and they say, yes, today is the day I get to help my friend, both of my friends, in their wedding ceremony. I can't wait for it. Now, I know I have things to do, family responsibilities, household chores, bringing something to my neighbor who's elderly and in need, but all throughout this day, in the back of my mind or the forefront of my mind, I want to think about and get ready for and anticipate this help I'm going to give to the bridegroom. And you know what? I've got to make sure I have plenty of oil. I've got to make sure that our procession is well lit the whole way. So I'm not going to let that go till 4.30. I'm going to make sure now in the morning I've got plenty of oil for that. It's that important for me in my service to this bridegroom. So hopefully this second group of people that Jesus addresses maybe comes a little closer to home for some of us in this room. I plan on watching the NBA Finals tonight, especially now that I have the teams correct in my mind. Can I watch that to the glory of Christ? I say yes to that. Could I watch the Finals and have Christ completely absent from any part of my thought life? Yeah, I could do that too. Could I have supper before the finals and have Christ completely absent from any of my thoughts or feelings? Yes. Could I spend my afternoon? Could I go home at one and say, I've done church for the day. The rest of the day is for me. I could do that too. I could be moral, a fairly wholesome, upright guy and curious about the words of Jesus but not really care about doing his words or spending the whole day glorifying him, as the five wise virgins did. Think back to that story of the two builders and the two foundations. The foolish man was not like the Pharisees who rejected Christ. He's, after all, listening to the words of Jesus. He's just not doing them. So there were crowds, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people, in and out of Jesus' three years of ministry, that unlike the Pharisees, wanted to be near him, wanted to follow him, wanted to be in his services, so to speak. They just went home and got consumed with other things and never decided to worship Jesus as God and King and Savior of their lives. So I've got another character from Narnia to share with you. Um, Let's look at the cover of the first book of the series, not chronologically the first, but the first one that we associate with the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. there are four kids, but two girls, and the older one, so the bigger one in this picture, is named Susan. Here's what's interesting about Susan. In the last book, the one I showed you the other book cover of, The Last Battle, at the end of that book, all of the children who have gone to Narnia come back to Narnia. They accompany Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, into a new Narnia, which is parallel to the new heavens and the new earth in the book of Revelation, they all come back and join Aslan with one exception, and it's this girl, Susan. We're not told exactly why, but we're given some pretty good clues. Apparently, Susan, though curious about Aslan, and a fairly moral and upright girl, we could imagine her in church every Sunday, is consumed with appearance, with guys, with dating wrong with any of those three, but they've become her gods. And the second sad thing about this last book, the first being the dwarves, is the absence of Susan. So as we close, I encourage you to think about, especially later today, are you in either of those two audiences, either a group of people that says, I am for me, and then we wouldn't say that wouldn't verbalize that but is that the thought of your heart i know what's right and i don't really need jesus to tell me what to do at least not now maybe later in life or are you in a group of people that says i'm moral i like listening to the words of jesus i just have other things that are higher priority on monday and tuesday and wednesday and thursday and friday and saturday and well the rest of sunday outside of sunday morning If so, that's a dangerous spot to be in. For the rest of us, thinking of this third speech, this third sermon, Matthew 24, 25, in what way do we long for the return of Christ? So here's a good little test for all of us. If we found out he really was going to come tomorrow, would that be great news? Or would you shy away from that news? Would you think thoughts like, I don't know if I want him to come back tomorrow. After all, I'm saving up for a new flat screen TV. So the next time some Super Bowl or finals run comes around, I can have people at my house. I don't have to go find their nice TV. And my house is almost paid off. Well, I guess it's like 18 years. But, you know, 18 years will be paid off. And I want to retire after that and travel. Couldn't he come back in 30 years? Not now. I mean, what you're saying is the stuff now is more important than Being in the presence of your Savior and King, so to what extent is He really a Savior and King if you would rather He not come back in your lifetime? So, this last sermon has some great food for thought, reflection, self examination.